So have you ever seen a magic show? Yeah. How many of you have seen a magic show? Oh, a lot of you. How many of you have seen a magic trick? How many, how many of you don't know what magic is? <laughs> All right. So, yeah, so you've, so you've seen a magic show. Some of you, that's a lot of fun. Some of you have seen a magic trick. That's pretty cool. You know, what I notice is when, whenever you see someone do a magic trick of whatever kind, the first response we have to that is, wow. And what's the second thing we all say? How'd you do that? There's something about us. We're like, we don't want to invest in it. We don't want to study it. We don't want to practice it so that we could do it. We just want to know how you did it. How'd you do that? Because it's amazing. Have you ever seen a magic marriage? <laughs> no, like no. Haven't you, haven't you seen people in your life who they, they're in this relationship in their marriage and you look at it and you go, that is amazing. You go, wow. And then you go, how'd you do that? Because you know it's not easy. If you're married, you know it's not easy. And it's not just about marriage. It's about relationships in general. I mean, haven't you seen two friends? You go, wow, you guys have such a great friendship. How'd you do that? And maybe it was your aunt and uncle, Fred and Wilma. Or maybe it was your grandmother and grandfather. Or or maybe it's your neighbors across the street. I don't know who the people are in your life. You look at and you go, wow, there's something about your relationship that's just magical. And you go, how'd you do that? Because you know it takes practice. You know it takes work. You know it takes investment. You know it's more than smoke and mirrors. They're not just faking it. We're in the midst of a series today, still sort of on the leading edge of this series today, and, and we're calling it More Than Smoke and Mirrors. And it's all about magical relationships. And you know, we're going to talk about marriage relationships, we're going to talk about family relationships, we're going to talk about work relationships, we'll talk about friendships. All kinds of relationships have the capacity to be magic, to bring magic into the world, to bring beauty into the world. And we want to talk about how do we get there, how do we, how do, we do that? Because what do you hope for in your relationships? If you're married, what do you hope for? You hope it's magical. If you have friendships with others, what do you hope for? You hope it's magical. If you have children, what do you hope for? A miracle. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's just another way of saying it's magical. It's, that's what you hope for. So in all these relationships, what do you hope for? You want something that's a little bit of magic. 2,000 years ago, a missionary named Paul wrote a letter to a church that he had started and then left to go on to another place, to bring the good news of Jesus to another place. And he writes this letter to this church that's in the town of Ephesus. And, uh, and, he, and Ephesus is really interesting. I don't know how you view people who lived 2,000 years ago. And I've, I've traveled around. I've seen a lot of ancient cities. And I'm always amazed at how sophisticated some of them are. Because see, when I, when I just sit in my chair and I just think back casually about people that lived 2,000 years ago, I think all people that lived 2,000 years ago were cavemen. Sorry, cave people. Yeah, I mean that, right? And yeah, if you go to the city of Ephesus, it's still there today. It's a beautiful city with highly functioning politics, well-functioning economy, beautiful market ability to, to produce things and sell things and prosper together. Amazing things that they had. 
And they had a very highly functioning religion. The problem with their religion was it was based on this goddess named Artemis. Her temple, one of her temples, was in the city of Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Beautiful, immense, extraordinary temple. And it dominated that city. And the religion of Artemis dominated that city. And the theology, the way they thought about Artemis, dominated how they behaved with one another in that city. Very much like the way the, the religious practices in our city that we sponsor in India dominates how they behave in that community. So Paul writes this letter to his friends in Ephesus and he says, I, I want your theology to be shaped by Jesus. I want your theology of Jesus to shape your views and to shape your relationships and shape how you treat one another and how do you relate to one another. And so Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians. It's found in the New Testament. And I want to just give you a little bit of an overview of the whole letter before we read a part of it today, just so you understand the whole thing. Because we're going to spend, in this time that we go through this series, more than smoke and mirrors, we're going to spend all of our time in about a chapter and a half of Ephesus. And so I want you to grasp the whole picture so that you're able to understand how the details fit in. So here's the whole picture of the story of Ephesus. Paul's theme in the whole letter is living on earth in the light of heaven. In other words, there are realities of heaven. We ought to live our lives on earth based on those realities. So the first three chapters are about engaging the realities of heaven. And when you go through Ephesians 1 through 3, you find these amazing statements about who God is and who Jesus is and what he's like and what benefits do we gain because of who Jesus is. And then the Chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians talk about practicing those realities on earth, living out the reality of heaven on earth. And so that's how the whole letter sets up, and I want to read a little bit of that letter. Actually, I want to read a, long, a rather long portion of that letter today. So if you have your Bible, why don't you open up to Ephesians chapter 5. If you have your smartphone and you want to do this on the YouVersion Bible app, we've got notes in there for you. We've got the scriptures all pulled out together for you. And so you can follow along on that and take notes there if you want to. And uh, if you just want to listen, that's fine as well. Your choice. Okay? Ephesians chapter 5. It's kind of a long passage, so buckle up and hang in there with it. And let's see if we can understand these realities of heaven and how they get lived out through us. Ephesians 5 verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless 
In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters... Treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Before we jump into the key of what I want to get to today, let me just give you now a little bit of an overview of that passage that we just read. So I gave you the whole overview of Ephesians. Let me just dial this piece in for you a little bit too. Verse 15 to 21 in chapter 5, give general instructions for life. Pastor Sean went through this last week as he launched off the series for us, and and he just brought out all these great little things that Paul gives to us. He says, hey, live your life with wisdom. Be wise, not unwise. And don't be drunk with wine. Or any other, you know, some of you are like, hey, you get drunk on something. No, 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 no. <clears throat> Don't be under the influence of something besides the Holy Spirit. Be under His influence in your life today. And make the most of every opportunity. Redeem it. Buy up the opportunities that God gives you because the days are evil. Practical, general instructions for life. And then chapter 5, verse 21 through 6, chapter 6, verse 9 He describes three ordinary relationships in our lives. We still have the same relationships in our lives today that they did in that generation. They get lived out a little bit differently sometimes, but they're the same relationships. It's the relationship of a marriage, and it's the relationship of a family, and it's the relationships that happen at work. And we still have all those relationships today. And then in chapter 5, verse 32, he gives the secret He goes, here's the secret of a magical marriage. Here's the secret of a magical friendship. Here's the secret of a magical family. Here's the deal. It's right here. Where he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And that's what I want. That's what I want us to get to. The magic. How do I get the magic? How do I capture the magic. 
Every great magic trick consists of three acts. The first act is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, but of course, it probably isn't. The second act is called the turn. He's obsessed with discovering your method. The magician makes this ordinary something do something extraordinary. Huh. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it. That's why there's a third act called The Prestige. This is the part with the twists and turns, where lives hang in the balance. Julie, come on. And you see something shocking you've never seen before. This was built by a man who can actually do what magicians pretend to do. Real magic. I know what you really are. How does he do it? You want the truth. Nothing is impossible. There is a secret. Paul says, this is a profound mystery, or the word that he uses is a word that means secret. It's something that was hidden, but is now revealed. And he says it's about Christ and his church. If you follow the description that they use in that video about a magic trick, you find that the life of Jesus looks pretty much like it. Not that I'm saying Jesus' life was magic in some way or not real in some way. It was very real, absolutely real. But it follows the same journey. There's, there's the pledge where the magician presents something that's rather ordinary. Or maybe it isn't. I mean, look at the life of Jesus. How did Je where did Jesus grow up? Do you know where Jesus grew up? Like, go ahead, this is interactive, it's okay. Do you know where Jesus grew up? <laughs> Bethlehem, Egypt, Nazareth, right on all counts. But he really, most of his childhood, was, he was raised in Nazareth. And when Jesus, later on, when he's getting ready to launch his public ministry, he started gathering disciples around him. And somebody invited this one guy named Nathaniel. He said, Get, come follow Jesus, he's from Nazareth, he's the Messiah. And, and, he, and this potential disciple goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Just ordinary. He just, Jesus, as he was growing up, lived a, a, an ordinary life. Or maybe it wasn't. And then he came into his public ministry and he began teaching these amazing things and doing these amazing miracles and healing people and just doing remarkable things until suddenly he disappeared because they nailed him to a cross and they buried him in a tomb. And that's the turn. That's act two. And now he's gone, and all his disciples who have put all their hope in him, they're so depleted, they're, dis they're discouraged and depressed, and like, oh, he's gone. And all hope went out of their lives. Until act three, Sunday morning, the prestige, or the reveal, or we call it the resurrection. And everything changed. And Paul says, this is a profound mystery. He's talking about all these relationships, marriage and friendships and children and parents and, and slaves and masters or bosses and employees and all these relationships. And he goes, but look, it's a, it's a, it's a secret. It's about Jesus and his church. 
He says, that's what I want you to get. The secret of a magic relationship is about Jesus. The secret of a magic marriage is about the redemptive life of Jesus. Every magical relationship reflects the redemptive life of Jesus. So Paul says in verse 31, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's, that's magic. That two become one, that's magic. Last weekend, my wife and I got to go down south. Our niece was getting married, and so we got to go and attend her wedding, and it was a beautiful wedding. She married a Colombian guy, not a drug runner, just a, you know average Colombian. <laughs> and uh, sorry, he's a beautiful young man. And uh, so they did, the, they did the ceremony in English and Spanish. Not like, here's a sentence in English, now we'll translate it into Spanish, which will be boring. They just did part of the service in English, and then they do the next part in Spanish. And then they do the next part in English and the next part in Spanish. I have no idea what happened. Except, you know, you've been to enough weddings, you sort of know the flow of what's going on. It's really beautiful. And then they got to the, toward the end of the wedding, and they got to the part where there's usually some kind of a metaphor or a symbol of the unity of marriage. For years and years, you know, we did, the, we did unity candles, so the, the bride and groom would go kind of the, to the back of the altar, and there'd be three candles up on the altar. There'd be two on the sides that were lit, and one in the middle that was not lit. And, and the bride and groom would stand to the side, and they'd take one of those candles each, and they'd take those two flames and bring them together as one flame, which is such a beautiful picture. And then they'd go down and lower that onto the third candle, and that candle would light. And it's called the unity candle. So beautiful. They didn't do that. I've seen other weddings where they, you know, they go back to the back and they've got, they've got three jars and, and one jar's got one color of sand and one jar's got another color of sand and then the, there's a jar in the middle, a sort of decorative jar and, and the bride and groom each take the sand, they pour it in at different paces, you know, and it's building up this pile of sand that's, that's all variegated and beautiful and they're going to leave it on their mantle for the rest of their life. They didn't do that either. They did one I'd never seen before. They went to the back of the altar, and there was a table like normal, but they had, <clears throat> they had three glasses. <clears throat> Excuse me. They had three glasses, and the wedding was in a vineyard. And so they had wine in the glasses. In her glass, there was white wine. In his glass, there was red wine, and the, in, the middle glass was empty. And together, they began to pour the white and the red into one glass, and it became rosé. And you know the beauty of that picture? is once you put white wine with red wine, you cannot separate them again. Unity. Two become one. It's a profound mystery, Paul says. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, when, when Paul says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh, he's quoting Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis chapter 1 is the creation of everything, the creation of the universe. It's a beautiful song about creation. Chapter 2 gets very much more specific and says, let's talk about the creation of human beings. And so God creates a man and he likes what he's done with the man. Then he brings a man and, he's, and the man finds out he's alone. So God says, I'm going to make a helper for him. So he puts the man to sleep, takes out a rib, fashions that into a woman, brings the woman to the man and says, here's your wife. And the man goes, that's what I'm talking about. 
And then God puts a commentary on it. God says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, which I think about that time, Adam and Eve must have been scratching their head like, what's that? I thought it was funny. (laughs) For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. They will be united together, and those two will become one flesh. And that's magic. That's magical. That's a beautiful mystery. But Paul says, when he puts his interpretation on it, he says, but it's a profound mystery. It's not primarily about the husband and the wife. It's primarily about Jesus and his church. And there is a union between Jesus and his church which is designed to be magical. It's designed to be powerful. It's designed to change the world. And see, we all get that. When it comes, when it comes to Jesus and the church, we go, yeah, 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 it's supposed to change the world. That's how it's supposed to be. But Jesus said, or, and Paul says, yeah, but look, that's a model of every relationship in your life. That's a model of your marriage. It's a model of your relationship with your kids or with your parents. It's a model of your relationships at work. It's a model of your friendships. When he goes through these three ordinary relationships that he lists in chapter 5 and chapter 6, every one of the people in these relationships, Paul gives a message. He says, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus, it's about Jesus, it's about Jesus, it's about Jesus, it's about Jesus. It always begins with Jesus. And your relationships are supposed to mirror what happens between Jesus and his church. If Jesus and his church are designed to change the world, then your relationships are designed to change the world. Or at least to change the world around you. The gospel influences everything we do. The gospel is designed to influence every relationship that we have. All our relationships are designed to reflect who Jesus is. It always begins with Jesus. We got to spend, we got to spend Christmas with my grandson and granddaughter. And, oh, and my, my daughter and son-in-law, they were there too. <laughs> I think, they, I think they understand how this works. But, um, so we're the, we're, and our family was all together, gathered around, and uh, you know, giving gifts to one another and things. And my son-in-law received a, a gift of a chair that, that was you know, one of those things that comes with assembly required. And so I'm, I'm sitting across the living room from him. He opens, he opens the gift, and it's a chair. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to put it together. So he starts putting it together. But what's the first thing he does when he starts putting together the chair? reads the instructions said a woman because there ain't no man in the world who reads instructions so I'm watching this I'm like hey what's my son-in-law like you know we're still getting to know each other and stuff like what's he like so sure sure enough he opens the box takes all the parts and puts the instructions back here and then he starts putting the chair together it comes out backwards it's, little, it's the kind of chair, it's like it, it, it can come out backwards, and it did, and you, you couldn't sit in it. <laughs> and then he says, unprompted, which is the, this is the good news, unprompted, he goes, I should have looked at the directions. 
Okay, you guys, here's the directions. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The relationship between Jesus and his church is designed to influence every relationship we have. In our marriage, in our family, in our workplace, in our friendships, every relationship. It's designed to reflect Jesus and his church. If you're married, your marriage will not save you. Some people think, well, you know, if, if I could just marry this person, they would save me. They'd take me out of this family I, I came from, and they, and they would save me. And some people marry others, and they, you know, with the hope that they'll save, that I'll, I'll save them. You know, I'll save that guy. Your marriage won't save you. Your family won't save you. But in the midst of those relationships, God wants to portray through you what he wants relationships to be like and what he wants the world to be like and how it can reflect Jesus. Your relationships are designed to be a portrait of the saving grace of Jesus. Now, some people will have objections to the process of this because you may say, yeah, but my husband's not a follower of Jesus. I'm in a marriage and I'm a believer in Jesus and my, and my husband's not or my wife is not. Or I'm a follower of Jesus, but my wife's not like the church at all. Or whatever, whatever fault may be in your marriage or in your other relationships. But it was never about them first anyway. It was always about Jesus first. And there's no roadblock to saying, I, I, can't do what, I can't do what Paul's teaching us to, to do. I can't do what Jesus is asking us to do. I can't do it because my partner in the relationship's not cooperating. It's not about that. It's always first about Jesus. Now, we're going to get to the rest of it. There's a lot of hard stuff in Ephesians 5. There's some hard things to understand. There's some hard things to practice. We're going to get to all that stuff, but not today. Because today, it's just about Jesus. Now, some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time. When I talk about Jesus, you go, oh, yeah, 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 I know Jesus. And nobody, nobody's got Jesus all the way dialed in. I don't have Jesus all the way dialed in. None of you have Jesus all the way dialed in. Because if, you, you know, like, if you say, yes, I do, then like, okay, well, have Jesus talked to you about pride yet? So, you know, we got, no one's got them all dialed in. I, I, I get that. But some of you walk with them for a long time. You might know what to do, but some of you are newer with Jesus or some of, you, some of you haven't even leaned into Jesus yet. Or you're just starting to figure out who he is. Let me just give you some help for those of you like that. And I'll give you something for everybody that we can all work on this week. And this is all I want you to do this week regarding this. How do you begin with Jesus? Well, one of the most famous verses in the Bible would probably be just the place to start. John 3.16. And many of you know it. Probably most of you know it. We already talked about it earlier in our gathering today. But it's this. God so loved the world. Which also means God so loved you. 
that he gave his only son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, would not perish but would have eternal life. That's, that's where to start. If you're, just, if you're just investigating who Jesus is, you go, I, I don't really know. Well, the place to start is trust him. You go, I don't, I don't know everything about him yet. I can't trust him if I don't know everything about him. You trust other people and you don't know everything about them. You trust people driving a car 55 miles an hour on a two-lane highway. You trust them not to come into your lane. You trust them. So you don't know everything about Jesus yet. Nobody does. But based on the things you know, God invites you to trust him. That's where it starts. Now, if you're ready for the next step after that, you, you go, okay, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, maybe the next step for you. It describes the gospel. It describes the, the part of Jesus' life where he gave his life on a cross and they buried him in a grave to demonstrate that he actually died. And then he rose again from the grave and he appeared to others to demonstrate the fact that he was alive. And that's the gospel. And you might want to meditate on those eight verses for this next week as they describe who Jesus is and what he's done. Or maybe you don't even really know the story of Jesus. Maybe you just need to go through what are known as the Gospels, the stories of Jesus in the New Testament, which are called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Maybe you just need to start with those and pick one of them and read the story of Jesus. Maybe that's where you start. And then for all of us, no matter if you're brand new or mat, no matter if you've been following Jesus for 50 years. For all of us, we can go back to the, our relationships and stop and ask Jesus in regard to any one relationship we have. Jesus, where are you in this relationship today? Jesus, what do you want to do in this relationship today? That works in your marriage. Jesus, what do you want to do in my marriage today? If the answer comes back and he says, I want you to do something to change them, you probably didn't hear him right. Jesus, what do you want to do in this relationship today? In your relationship with your roommate, Jesus, what do you want to do in this relationship today? In your relationship with your parents or your relationship with your children, Jesus, what do you want to do in this relationship today? In your relationships at work with your boss or with your, the people that report to you, Jesus, what do you want to do in this relationship today? And I might even ask it one different way and say, Jesus, what do you want to redeem in this relationship today? And just that. We'll get to the other good stuff next week and the week after and the week after that. But for this week, just that. Jesus, what do you want to redeem in this relationship today? Lord, I pray for us that we would have our heart dialed into you. Lord, you are, you are the creator of magic. You created this universe. And I know we figured out a lot of how it works, and there's a zillion things we haven't figured out at all yet about how it all works, but you created it to be beautiful and amazing. And in this whole system of the universe, you also put human beings here, and you called us to engage with one another. It's part of our design that we engage with one another. And so I pray today that in the midst of all those relationships we have, we would be seeking you first. 
and we would be finding you first and we would be honoring you first and Lord for us in our relationships what do you want to redeem today Lord thank you thanks for loving us we love you back we're grateful Amen